0: Sometimes it's inevitable to give in. Sometimes that's the only way to begin. Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way. Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay.
1: Welcome to Season 2 of the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in Tokyo, Japan. And with me in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and we're very happy to kick off Season 2 with a topic we find endlessly fascinating. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades and are excited to share them with you through
0: this podcast. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Christopher. Very happy that we were able to complete one season and excited to get another one started. I realized as we began planning out season two that this is going to be a heavier lift. Season one was a lot of basics. It was a lot of laying the groundwork. And going into season two, we're going to start diving in deeper on different topics, which I think is going to take more work on our part to refresh our memory and make sure that we've got our facts straight and that sort of thing. But I'm up for the challenge. Hopefully you are too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I think we're starting on, uh, not particularly difficult footing in season two. This is kind of very well foundational to our wheelhouse. If, if wheelhouses do in fact get built upon foundations, I'm not really sure what a wheelhouse looks like,
0: but, um, (laughs) anyway, uh, so did you have a good break? (laughs) I I did. I mean, we are recording this before the uh, Christmas holidays. So obviously, uh, you're off for some vacation and I'll have some downtime but we wanted to get something in the can so that we have we've got something ready to roll in in early January but yeah i've had a chance to get some rest and uh recharge a little bit and i look forward to doing even more of that over the new year period how about you
1: yeah just finished up with a bunch of th- pressing things that needed to be done and we're being put off and with all of the craziness that's happening you know outside of this podcast i I'd, I'd say that uh the year is ending on a decent, relatively positive note. So I'm I'm good with that. Um, But yeah, let's let's just dive in, shall we? Sure. Um, You know, this could very well represent the fundamental difference between Western and Eastern alcohol traditions. And what I'm referring to here is really how the starches are sacrificed, how the starches are broken down to release those important sugars that we need in order to ferment, in order to create alcohol. So, when we think about East versus West, I mean, obviously in the West, we're talking beer, we're talking whiskey when it comes to malted grains, right? And then in the East, we're talking about a whole plethora of ingredients that leverage the microbial action of what we call in Japan koji. So, Let's let's really dig into it on, in this episode. How about that?
0: That sounds great. And I'm going to take a step back, just make it really simple. Uh, I'm assuming our listeners at this point are up to speed on how alcohol is made. But just in case you skipped season one, a little refresher. The easiest way to make alcohol is with sugar and yeast and obviously some sort of liquid. You would need a liquid base. But that's why fruit wines uh, are... Pretty much consider the earliest alcohols that were made. There are even there's even evidence of animals who find rotten fruit and get tipsy on the rotten fruit because the sugars inside of the fruit have uh, turned to alcohol due to due to yeasts. So it's really the simplest way, and and so basically you you only need some yeast and some accessible sugar in a liquid environment to create alcohol, and that's wine right? That's essentially wine. That's all sorts of fruit wines are made. As as I like to say, all you need to make wine is grapes and feet, right? You step on some grapes, hmm. break the skins, release the, the sugars and the liquid inside the grapes and the yeast in your feet will do the rest of the work. Yeast on your feet, hopefully not in your feet. Uh, hmm. <laughs> but but that's it's really, really simple to make alcohol from... Fruit. That doesn't mean it's simple to make good alcohol from fruit. As we know, great wines can cost a fortune both to make and to, to, to purchase and enjoy. But uh, that really is the simplest form of alcohol production. And it's when you have inaccessible sugars or you don't have sugars available in your, in your grains, as you mentioned, it's, just, it's a starch or complex carbohydrate source that you need to do something else first. And why don't you talk a little bit about malting since you're the uh, resident brewer?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, malting, malting grains, which are essential for beer and whiskey for the uninitiated. You can't just take a a sack of barley and brew with it. That's not how these things work. Basically, these grains are packed with a chain of it's what it's a starch polymer. It's basically it's a chain of sugars that are bound together in a really complex manner. And you have to do something to convert those starch chains into simple, soluble sugars. And of course, that involves enzymes. And enzymes are at every step of the process in the brewing process. We're talking about in terms of sacrification, in terms of fermentation, enzymes are essential for converting something from one chemical state to another. They basically enable things to happen with a lower energy load, this conversion from one chemical state to another. They're absolutely essential. And fortunately, barley, which is the magic grain of beer and whiskey and many other world beverage alcohol uh, styles, is packed with not only starch to a much greater degree than wheat is, for instance, but also has enzymes at the ready. And what you have to do is you have to get these enzymes active and that's where the malting process comes in so most people don't realize this but there's a really detailed and f- careful procedure that goes into getting those enzymes to start their job and the way that you do that is that you steep these grains now i don't know most people have probably never tried to chew on a barley grain before but it will it will wreck your dentures that they're like they're like rocks they are rock solid and that's good because when you need to, uh, when you create a bed of them that might be a foot or two f- feet deep, when you're malting them, there it's really good for draining the the liquid off of the the grains that are on the floor in a traditional um, malting house. Uh, they don't stick together quite so easily, but that's I mean that's not the most important part. The most important part is that that husk is a great protector for what's inside and it doesn't lose its shape very easily. Now, you steep the grains for probably about 24 hours and you want the moisture content of this barley to get to around 45% moisture content. And then that kind of activates the enzymes. And what the enzymes do is they start going to work. They think they're about, they need to grow. The, the entire grain of barley is like, okay, let's do our job. Let's create a barley plant. And so it starts to create the little the little roots come out of one side and the thing that's going to shoot up into the sky comes out the other side it's actually kind of hidden but it comes out the other side and if you monitor the growth of these things coming out of the grains then you can gauge how far along in the malting process you are now the grain thinks it's about to grow the maltster has other ideas of course they want to make <laughs> malt so they're going to at the perfect moment they're going to slam that Uh, process that germination process shut by draining off the water and then either there's a there's a bunch of different ways to do this but to simplify you can move all of those grains into a drum to dry them or you can move them into a kiln to kiln them even while they're still moist and there's all sorts of different decisions that go into this based on what type of malt you want to make Uh, You can have like a a pale malt that's really lightly kilned at a very low temperature. You can have brown malts that are like, sorry, I'm going to use some jargon here, but around like 250 Lovabond, which is a a way to measure, at least in the US, the Europeans have a different way of doing this, Uh, 250 Lovabond for a brown malt uh, up, you know, what, 300 to 600 uh, Lovabond for, for a black malt or a chocolate malt and that's where all of the flavor in your beer or your whiskey cuz whiskey is basically just distilled beer comes from and malting is a pretty old process i mean ancient civilization really came about when they figured out how to how to make wine and how to plant the right wild grasses to make beer you know so this is an ancient thing that has been perfected over generations and malting is really what we're talking about whenever you're drinking a beer or well, hold on i I need to digress again, because a lot of American styles of beers use adjuncts that aren't malted, like corn and and rice, but whatever, you know basically your foundational recipe or the most important parts of your beer recipe,
0: and probably your whiskey w- recipe are malted grains. That's a fantastic uh, explanation, Christopher, and as. As always, I learn something new whenever we record. I've never, I've never brewed beer, and but and I've heard you talk about it before, but I've never heard you talk about malting to quite that degree. So that was uh, extremely enlightening. Thank you for that. And another thing is that probably the the vast majority of people who make
1: beer don't make their own malt. Ah, fair. That it's almost always third party businesses. So it is something that you really have to look into. You have to go visit in order to see how it's made and. And learn it that way, and that's what makes it very different from the. You're going to talk about koji in a moment, and how koji, even if the grains aren't necessarily local, the koji is made locally in almost all cases. So while koji, and we're going to explain how it takes the place of malt, it's also really interesting because that process, to a large extent, is done on premise. the The koji, um, you know putting the koji mold on the on the starch source, whatever it happens to be, is done in the distillery. And that really is a big difference between the koji traditions and the malting traditions.
0: That's right. I mean, propagating koji or basically coming or making a fully formed koji mold is a full-time job. It's not something that, that a, a brewery or distillery would do on their own, much like malting is not typically done on site. But I think what's different is uh, breweries and distilleries in the West are buying malt that's already been malted, grains that have already been malted. That's correct. And then using those to make their products. Right. Especially, we're going to talk about, obviously, Japanese traditions. The koji spores are purchased from a, a koji house, a koji maker, but then they are propagated on the grains on site in the brewery or in the distillery, whether we're talking about a sake brewery, a shochu distillery or an awamori distillery, typically. Right. And in koji is essentially doing the job of the malt. It's sacrificing the grains, but the enzymes are being created through the uh, the koji growth process. And so, as I mentioned, koji is a mold. We'll take a step back. It is magic. It is uh, the national mold of Japan. They're really... As I'm sure some of you have heard me say before, there would not be the Japanese culinary traditions as we know them without koji. Koji is used to make sake, shochu, and awamori, but it's also used to make soy sauce, mirin, miso, some styles of Japanese pickles. It's used as a meat tenderizer. It's actually been used as a digestive aid to help settle your stomach because of the enzymes that it uh, produces. So Koji really is ubiquitous in Japanese culinary traditions, whether it be beverage alcohol or or food ingredients. Now, when making alcohol with koji, you begin uh, as we mentioned with a grain usually substrate, so barley or rice rice is more common, but barley is is quite often used and unlike a malted grain in which you've left the grain intact, you need to leave the grain intact in order to To malt it because you need it to germinate. In koji production, you want to remove the germ, you want to remove the husk, you want to take off the outer layer, you polish the grain, and you end up with essentially pearled barley or polished rice. Basically, what we would think of as white rice, uh, typically. And that is steamed, and then the koji spores are propagated on that. And in a traditional koji-making process, you would then hand-mix the spores into the rice or the barley. And I was once told that the goal in that process is to get four to five spores on each grain. I have no idea how that's measured, but basically you want to do enough mixing for long enough that the koji gets propagated throughout the entire batch of, of rice or the entire batch of barley. And in my experience working at Yamato Zakura, that is usually about an hour to an hour and 15 minute process for 150 kilograms of rice, Mm -hmm. which is not a lot of rice when you're talking about alcohol production scale. So that uh, process, once you've got your, your, you've inoculated the grain with koji, your job's not finished. You then need to give the koji the appropriate environment in which it can, it can thrive, it can grow, it can take hold and start to uh, break down those starches into sugars. And so you then will store the Koji inoculated rice or barley in a hot, humid environment for usually it's around 40 to 48 hours and a very, very carefully temperature and humidity controlled environment. And that's what the Koji wants. It wants that hot heat and humidity in order to, to start to do its job. Uh, but as the koji begins to grow into and on the grains, it is uh, essentially hypha or, or basically tendrils are growing into the grains and it is beginning to create enzymes. It's creating uh, amylase and protease. Amylase, uh, which is breaking the starches into sugars and protease is where the meat tenderizing side of it comes in and we'll kind of leave that out of it for now. But the koji will essentially, it's beginning to dissolve the grain. When you take a at the end of this two two day process, this forty to forty eight hour process, if you take a a very well koji inoculated grain out of the uh, the batch, it will almost break brittle, just basically dissolve in your hands. It's basically been converted to sugar. Most of the grains won't necessarily get to that degree that quickly, but that's the end goal: is to essentially by the end of the process, you will have create you would converted. Uh, all of the starches into sugars uh, from your starch source now after that process you then move to the fermentation and this is where the alcohol production starts but i'm gonna let christopher maybe take over that part of it and talk a little bit about what what's different between how beer or whiskey is produced as far as the alcohol production and how sake or shochu or awamori are produced sure the one of the big things and and we've kind of
1: touched on it already is whether or not the husk of the grain is intact when it finds its way into the first stage of the brewing process. And for malted grains, generally, the the husk is still, you know, it's all, it's still around all of those sacrificed starches in the center. And it's actually become quite soft now. You can kind of, if it's still wet, you can, you can squeeze it and it kind of, it's an interesting texture. It's got a really interesting consistency, and in it it it, uh, it kind of smooshes. It, it was rock hard before it was soaked and steeped, and then it, it, it becomes kind of soft and malleable, but still maintains its shape in a way that allows it to act like a filter when you need, need to drain water off of it. And those need to be cracked open, unlike the grains that are used to make sake and shochu and awamori. Those have already been polished, And you crack those open in a mill, you crack these malted grains open by running them through something that's going to crush them. And then you run that into a mash tun where you start to separate those sugars from the husks, from the cracked husks. And you do it with, with warm water, sometimes hot water, depending on what type of beer you're trying to make or how well caramelized the malted grain is. There's a, there's, as as usual I'm oversimplifying to a level that is probably making some professional brewers cringe <laughs> but I am just trying to make it easy easier to understand because even when I was home brewing I was buying when I went all malt as a as a child homebrewer and I moved <laughs> away from from you know those little cans of malt extract uh I was I really had no idea how these malted grains were created all I knew was that there were You know, there was Maris Otter and there were all of these famous malted barley traditions from around the world, especially, uh, you know, depending on how warm the climate is, there's two row grain, two row and six row we talk about all all the time. Probably people don't realize the way that you tell the difference between two row and six row is that two row barley, when you look at it from the top, there's actually two, I just realized it shouldn't be called two row, it should be called two column. So that's a, that's a, they should call it two column because it's two tall columns of, of kernels, one on either side of the stem of the barley. And then if you look at six grain from the top, it actually has six columns of grains like going all the way down, at least for the head anyway, of the, the barley chute. And uh, for what it's worth in beer and usually in whiskey, they, they tend to use for all malt, they use a, a two grain barley just because it has a lower protein content and Six-row is often used for American-style, very light lagers and beers of that nature where they're going to use adjuncts anyway and they can overcome some of those challenges with high protein contents. But to get back on track here, those cracked malted grains go into the tun. you separate or you, you try and get the, the sugars to release into the liquid and extract themselves from all of these cracked husks. And then that will move, be moved on to a lotter ton where the sugary water will be drained off of the husks. But it's uh, very, very different from everything. this From this point, because you're dealing with the husks, it's very different from dealing with koji, where you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. There's no there's no mash ton when you're making Japanese beverage alcohol that's not called whiskey or beer. And maybe, Stephen, you can get into that a little bit.
0: Sure. And that is an interesting contrast, Christopher, and I don't know that I thought about it in quite those terms before, but in sake, shochu, awamori production, when we're using these for these koji fermented uh, alcohols, we are endeavoring to use all of the ingredient. So there is no waste of the husk or, or whatever the is discarded as there would be in the West. And in a perfect fermentation, the entire starch source would be liquefied before the fermentation is finished. And so. You essentially skip that step of sugar extraction, which you uh, do in the Western tradition, and you take that koji inoculator, cogified, it's it's a verb we're trying to make real, uh, that cogified grain, and you put that into your first fermentation directly, right into the primary fermentation with water and yeast. When that happens, those sugars are immediately made accessible to the yeast, and the yeast goes to town and begins to create alcohol nearly immediately. So, when yeast is converting sugars to alcohol, it's also creating carbon dioxide, and that's where you get the the foam or the bubbles it's the gases that start to release out of the fermentation. those bubbles will start to appear within just a few hours of of uh, the start of one of these primary fermentations, because the yeast has so much accessible sugar already just from the Koji making process that had been done prior to the beginning of the fermentation then. You basically, for these primary fermentations, depending on what you're making, the time can vary quite a bit, and the decisions being made vary quite a bit as far as fermentation temperature and duration, what kind of yeast you use. That's all, I think, fodder for a different episode. But essentially, you have something going on at that point called multiple parallel fermentation because the koji hasn't stopped. The koji is continuing to convert those starches into sugars, and the yeast is... Then eating those new sugars to convert it to alcohol. And over the course of about a week, if we're talking about shochu production, uh, you will have essentially completed your primary fermentation and you'll be 14 to 18% alcohol at that point at the end of your primary fermentation. Now you've managed to keep your koji alive. Koji is an aerobic organism, it needs oxygen to survive. And so you aerate the fermentation. Uh, This is done both by keeping the fermentations open in most uh, distilleries and then also by mixing. And this is done by hand in smaller distilleries with these uh, long poles called uh, Kaibo. Uh, And then in larger distilleries, they will have automated mixing machines. And basically, as you aerate, you're giving the Koji an opportunity to breathe and continue its process of sacrification. That agitation or that aeration is also agitating the yeasts, which is creating uh, desirable uh, aromas for us to enjoy later in the process. So, but, Christopher, as I was listening to you, I was really struck by, as you described malting and how that process worked. I'm going I'm to shift back uh, again to the other side with a couple of questions, if you don't mind. Mm. I never really understood what made dark beer dark and light beer light. I'd heard of roasted malts. I'd heard of coffee malts. I'd heard of chocolate malts. But I didn't really understand that it was really about how vigorously you essentially roast the malt as you're trying it out as you're as you're arresting that process is that is that a fair way of describing it or do you have a little bit more nuanced way of explaining that
1: yeah I, that you're you're pretty much right on the money i mean it can vary also according to how much moisture is left in the grains when you kiln them so if you dry them out completely versus um, allowing a little bit of the moisture to remain that can have a pretty big difference on the finished product but when you think about the the mash bill for a for a typical beer you know a lot of that even for darker beers is probably going to be a pretty pale colored malt okay or maybe a crystal malt and then you don't need a whole lot usually of the much darker the heavier degreed lover bond everything from like uh chocolate malt or or even like uh, roast barley roasted barley that is Often unmalted and is absolutely essential for Irish stouts, for instance. You don't need a whole lot of that to really get that influence. Uh, the, the roasted and toasted qualities that, that we expect, the, the chocolatey, the coffee qualities and, and aromas that are so part and parcel with those styles of beer. In all malt brewing, you're dealing with a combination of different darknesses everything from as i said before the pale ale malts and the vienna malts out there and and the pilsner malts to the medium level which is munich and and ambers and what a uh, pale chocolate and then as i said before into the the chocolate and and black at the other side of the spectrum and and getting it right can lead to an incredibly layered complex and delicious beer mm-hmm. Uh, probably the type of thing that our good friend Garrett Oliver will will geek out about. I wonder how much a, a whiskey brewer and distiller will geek out about it just because they are going to rely so much on the cask for their finishing aroma
0: profile, uh, if you will. Yeah, I think there's more attention being paid now uh, to the malt uh, essentially type being used in different uh, whiskeys among malt, malted whiskeys. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Mm-hmm. But uh, probably something to talk to a maybe a malt whiskey expert. We can have them on sometime to have a conversation about that. Mm. I feel like that almost might be more of an experiment that's going on in American malt whiskey than in in Scotland. But I may be wrong about that. Interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, as you know, I'm a huge fan of stout and porter. Those are just my jam when it comes to beer. Yeah. Uh, so glad to know a little bit more about how they're made. That's uh, that's good info. I appreciate that. You mentioned that these fermentations take quite a long
1: time and and after at the end of them presumably there is very little fermentable sugar left however within the tradition of making uh kasutori shochu where they're using the leaves from sake production to restart a fermentation what's going on there how do they how do they do that how do they leverage what is left in those lees is it is it it's just ready to restart if you give it the right conditions or do they add things to it what do you what do you know about the kasatori tradition that that shows the amazing uh
0: survivability of koji sure so koji sacrification is not perfect you you are going to have residual solids and that's why uh, when you make sake you press it the press is acting as a filter you're extracting the clear liquid you know as well as i do the official name of sake in Japan is seishu, which means essentially clarified sake. So sake that has been pressed is what's technically sake as we understand it in the West. Before the press, it's cloudy and the cloudiness is coming from the residual solids, which are now microscopic. They're very, very tiny. They're almost like almost sand in their size. Through that filtration process, you're going to out with the clear sake on one side and you'll be left with those solids on the other and that's the sake leaves that's the sake kasu and then that sake kasu because the press is imperfect and also the koji sacrification has been imperfect you're left with residual carbohydrates residual starches that can be uh sacrificed you're also left with residual koji and you're left with residual alcohol Mm -hmm. the lees are still moist with water and alcohol content and so you can't then use the as fertilizer because the alcohol would damage the roots of the plants that you're trying to grow. So you make kasutori shochu. And that process is typically done. You could you could rehydrate the the sake leaves and distill them. That's that's something that you could do. Both in my experience making kasutori shochu and in speaking with uh, sake brewers who do make their own, they typically will re-goose the fermentation. They're going to add fresh yeast and some more koji rice, rice koji, to the fermentation, uh, just to, to punch it up a little bit. But they really only let it run for about four days. It's a very short fermentation by shochu standards in the sake-lease production process. Hmm. And just since we're talking about
1: sake anyway, and that was a great explanation. Thank you very much. A very, very clear, I like the use of the the idea there is there it is an imperfect process and and perhaps purposefully so when you're pressing the leaves you don't want to press them too much because then you're going to get a little bit more than you bargained for out of that out of the press mm-hmm. and of course when we're talking about sake production we're talking about yellow koji or what in Japanese would be called kikoji and kikoji is used virtually everywhere in the sake industry I don't think I'm overstating when I say 99.9% of sake production uses yellow koji, and that is part of the reason why sake is known for its fruity and floral characteristics. A lot of what is ginjoka is allowed to happen or enabled by the use of yellow koji. If you used a different koji strain, you'd likely get a very different expression. And a different koji strain, at least as far as Japanese distilling goes, would be namely white koji or black koji. So shiro koji and kuro koji. Kuro koji is, of course, what is used exclusively. It, I'm sorry, it's not used exclusively, but it is the only strain that you can use to make awamori. Or ryukyu awamori must be made with black koji or kuro koji or awamori luchuensis, I believe is... is I can, I'm not, I've never actually heard somebody pronounce that word. <laughs> I haven't either. So I'm not even sure I'm saying it right. I've only read it about a million times. Yeah. So, but that's the indigenous strain to the very southern southwesterly reaches of the Japanese archipelago, and that gave birth to white koji, which you can t- probably talk a little bit more about.
0: Yeah, white koji was actually discovered in a laboratory, and I believe 1923. It was a professor Kawachi who's actually quite important in the history of shochu. He also developed the Koachi drum, which is the automated koji processing drum that's used by many medium-sized distilleries to avoid the handmade koji making process. But uh, he actually had an, a variant of koji named after him, which is Aspergillus Koachi, which is white koji. And white koji and black koji are, are unique from yellow koji in that they create acidity uh, through their sacrification through their their enzymatic process, where yellow koji does not. And in a very traditional sake making process, you would need to come up with a source for acid to protect the fermentation. And that traditionally was done through the the growth of lactobacillus bacteria, which would create acidity for the fermentation to protect it from other organisms joining the party with the yeast and and the koji. But down south in Kyushu, that wasn't really viable because it's such a hot, humid environment. And so, the black koji and and white koji create their own acidity so you can remove that step of the process or adding an adjunct acid which is done in modern sake production. But then they also have their own character that they impart. But maybe we'll, we'll wait on talking about what aspects these koji actually bring to the drink itself. But essentially, there are these different styles of koji that can be used and they can be grown on different substrates. As I mentioned at the top, Mm. rice and barley are by far the most common, Sure, but there is 100% buckwheat or soba shochu, so where the koji is actually grown on the the buckwheat. There is 100% sweet potato shochu, which from all accounts is really, really difficult to make. Mm. As I understand it, the sweet potato is... Dehydrated after it's been steamed. It's then dehydrated and then granulated and then rehydrated and then the koji is propagated after it's <laughs> steamed again. It's like <laughs> what are they making it for astronauts or something? What's right? going on? Yeah, it's like something you buy at the Smithsonian, right? At the Air and Space Museum. Yeah, yeah. Uh yeah. it's so that is not a very common style either. It tends to be large uh producers who who make that. And they're very uh secretive about how they actually make their sweet potato. Uh, substrate for their koji making. And I recently came across 100% corn shochu. And that made me think about how did they grow koji on corn, which reminded me of uh, Jokichi Takamine, the Japanese chemist who was making whiskey in America in the 1890s. And by all accounts, he was making his whiskey from corn. Corn was at least part of the mash bill. Really smart guy. Graduate of Tokyo University, came from a sake-making family. His father was a samurai physician. He studied all over Japan. He studied in Nagasaki and in Osaka in Kyoto and then eventually in Tokyo. At the age of 31, he was running the Japanese patent office. This was clearly a really, really bright young man. And yet it took him three years to go from experimenting with koji to make whiskey to actually going into production for making whiskey. And I was thinking about why did it take so long? I think. Sort of my working theory now is what we talked about earlier in the show, the husks of the grains are really difficult for the koji to infiltrate. And so they had to come up with a solution to allow koji access to the starchy center of the grains. And so what I understand was his solution was actually cerealed wheat. So they ground up wheat, Mm. which allowed access to the carbohydrates or the starches inside of the husk. And then that's what the koji could be propagated on. Oh, And I'm wondering if they are doing something similar with the corn shochu that's being made as 100% corn, if, they've, if they're granulating or serializing the corn or maybe like a corn bran or a corn almost powder or something is being used to, to make that process uh, for that shochu. But do you know any other styles of shochu that are made from different kinds of koji other than, what did I say, rice, barley, sweet potato, buckwheat, and corn? I'm not
1: sure that I do. Um, Sesame is, is there
0: 100% sesame? No. No, there wouldn't be. Yeah, they're using, uh, I believe they're using both rice and barley in their fermentation. And then it's usually the mash bill is no more than about 20% sesame. Yeah, that would be, that makes sense. That would be a feat. That would be unbelievable. I can't think of anything. I can't either. I guess we'll keep our eye open on back labels and see if anything pops out. It's going to be something random like kudzu root, or, you know, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, you, you're right. Somebody figured out how to do a
1: hundred percent, you know, water chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Something will pop up. Yeah, sure, sure. I think water chestnuts today are being used more for like uh, cosmetics and
0: skincare products, but they've been used to, to make shoju as well. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So shifting gears, why don't we talk about the character that Koji imparts, uh, into the spirit and we're really talking about shochu since almost all sake as you mentioned is made with yellow koji almost all actually all awamori is made with black koji but in shochu there are i think pretty clear differences in how the different koji expresses in a shochu made from the same base ingredients is that fair yeah there absolutely is a difference in terms of
1: the black versus white versus yellow koji strains and their influence on the flavor profile of the of the shochu you can clearly see this in the three nishi products which are and i'm gonna i can't remember the white koji it's like hakuten or something like that and then kicho and tomino and you if you do a a side-by-side tasting you'll see that the the yellow koji is a lot brighter and a lot more floral the white koji is kind of down the middle and the black koji has a has a an interesting sweetness but it's also got this depth and this complexity to it it's really interesting to see how it can bend the flavor profile in different directions and of course you can you can temper that to a certain extent based on many choices available to the toji and and the staff and the temperature of the fermentation all that stuff um so it's uh just as much as the malt type affects the flavor of the beer the Koji type also has a significant impact on the
0: final product. Sure. Yeah. And I think here in uh, domestically in Japan, if you're fortunate enough to be able to try uh, Manzen with Manzen being black Koji, Manzen on being yellow Koji and manazudu being white Koji, it's a great way to see the contrast uh, from essentially a distillery that does every single thing the, the same way every time, except for changing the Koji. Yeah, So that's a, that's a fun, fun trio as well. And actually the most striking contrast in the kojis that I've experienced was actually from beer. There was an Italian brewery that made a black koji beer and a yellow koji beer. Wow. And of course, the key thing with making a beer versus making a spirit is that acidity doesn't go away. That acid that was created in the fermentation, you don't get rid of that, right? So the black koji beer was just this sour bomb. Ah, uh, Yeah and the yellow was it had all of the honeyed sweetness of like a beautifully made uh german uh pilsner huh i don't know if you've had that that honeyed sort of aroma flavor of a of a german pilsner that can just be a beautiful beautiful drink and that's what that italian uh yellow koji beer tasted like it was a really really gorgeous beer and then you had this black sour bomb which was fascinating but i wouldn't have had two. <laughs> uh yeah i bet that's really interesting. I, I would love to try that. Yeah, I, I, I think that it was a one-time experiment. I'm sure there are bottles still out in the wild, but probably pretty tough to track down. Oh, I'm sure. You uh, you sipping on anything? Oh, um, yeah, I am
1: actually. I'm, I'm having a, a little taste of Zuiko, which is, we were talking about black koji just a moment ago. And this is, of course, an awamori. It's a 10-year-aged awamori made by Ikema out on Miyakojima. Uh, and it's, it's quite nice. You've got
0: a bottle of that? Yes. Thank jealous, you. jealous. Yeah, good stuff. <laughs> How about you? Uh, I'm actually yeah, enjoying uh, my house shochu, basically. I'm drinking Yamato Sakura. Uh, you'll appreciate this. I'm having it Oyuwari because it's like really, really cold out uh, these days. I think I think the high tomorrow is going to be 5 degrees Celsius, which is what, about 40? 40, a little, a little over 40, 42 that's pretty cold for Fukuoka, so I uh, I cracked out the oyuwadi. I'm actually having the uh, new classic imo shochu uh, oyuwadi. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah, enjoying it. But that's the white koji. I'm getting that that mellowed sweetness and and not a lot else going on. Just tasting the sweet potato shining through. So good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I um I think this is a good start to season two. I I uh, I feel like we're gonna probably spend a few episodes as we get this season started diving into different specific aspects of different drinks and see where it takes us and we are lining up some interviews and that sort of thing. I think it's going to be a fun season as I as I mentioned at the top I think it'll be a little more challenging than season 1 but uh I believe we're we're up for it. So good start Christopher.
1: Yeah. Nice work. And to all of you out there, now you know the difference between malted grains and kojified grains. And anytime somebody calls koji a malted rice, you know that they're full of hooey, <laughs> And you can kick them in the shins. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> no, don't, don't, don't tell them that I told you to do so, anyway. Um, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Once again, we are very, very glad to be doing this again and to be. Um, encouraged to do so by many people out there. And if you enjoyed season one, then please take a moment to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to it. And of course, please tell all of your friends about us because if you're interested, they might be interested. And if they become interested, then we have a growing community. And that's what we're trying to do. Please feel free to reach out to us, of course, on Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. How about you, Stephen?
0: Uh, You can reach out to me at Japan Distilled on Twitter or Instagram, same handle, and hit us up with your thoughts. Also, please tune into our Japan Distilled show Tuesday, every Tuesday evening at, I think these times are right, 8 p.m. Eastern and 10 a.m. Wednesday in Japan, at least when it's not daylight savings.
1: All right, everyone. Thank you very much. And from both of us here in Japan to everyone out there around the world, a very hearty and heartfelt kanpai. Kanpai. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost
0: stories.